I'd like to have you find your place in our passage, which is Psalm 85. If you don't mind, I'm going to have you stand one more time. I know you just receded. Because like many of the Psalms, this one is a prayer. And specifically, I'm asking you to join me in this prayer for spiritual renewal. Psalm 85. Lord, You were favorable to Your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of Your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all Your wrath. You turned from Your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation. And put away Your indignation toward us. Will You be angry with us forever? Will You prolong Your anger to all generations? Will You not revive us again that Your people may rejoice in You? Show us Your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us Your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people, to His saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. This is the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. And this is, as we've said, a prayer of God's people for Him to renew them spiritually. And we need renewal. When I was in seminary, one of the men who impacted me a great deal was Dr. Roy Fish, who taught a course on spiritual awakenings. And I remember him telling us that in the history of revival, there is a pattern that is very much like the going out and coming in of the tide that very often it begins at a very low time as the tide has seemed to go out. And the spiritual life of the church and in the society as a whole fades, values fall away, even among those who claim to know and love Christ. Churches become lethargic, uninterested in the things of God filled instead with empty activities and man-made pageantry. Unbelief advances. Morality loosens. The Bible is set aside so that doctrinal deviation becomes the norm and heresies arise. As a result, the church loses its power and vitality in the culture and faith begins to wane. It becomes a very low time spiritually until, in God's mercy, the tide begins to turn. Troubled by what they've seen, a few who love Christ begin to seek God earnestly. And it's interesting, at least in this nation, often that has been a movement among young people. They grow dissatisfied by what they see of impotent religion. They want more. They want something real. Worldly pleasures no longer appeal to them because they want God. They want His reality. And so they begin to pray. 
They began to cry out for God to move among them and to do something. To do something. Spiritual hunger intensifies and more join in and numbers begin to turn to God and pray. So that third, in God's wonderful providence, the tide comes in. God breathes new life into the church. His people begin to be renewed. The church sets aside its silly games and entertainment program and begins to seek Christ in earnest. Heresy is rejected. The Bible is embraced and the Gospel boldly proclaimed. God's people begin to see both conversions and increased persecutions. They begin to live holy lives that impact the culture around them. Life returns and God is exalted until His people forget Him once more, turn aside, and the pattern repeats. Now that may be a bit simplistic. It doesn't always happen in exactly that way, but it is basically true as we look back historically through church history and within Scripture itself. Uh, We see it in the book of Kings, for instance. Really, we see it in Exodus and Numbers and the rest of the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, as again and again, God's people wander away and yet the Good Shepherd goes after them and restores them. We've seen it countless times in our own history. Psalm 85 pictures one of those critical turning points where God's people, moved by what they see around them, have begun to turn to Him in prayer. That's what I want us to look at this morning. This prayer, revive us again. Praying for spiritual renewal. And again, we need spiritual renewal, don't we? If statistics mean anything... Recent surveys show a consistent decline in Christianity in the West in general uh, and here in our own country. The Southern Baptist Convention alone, the largest Protestant denomination, has lost 2 million members in the past 15 years despite vigorous church planting efforts. Among evangelicals in this past year, 2023, 30% of churches report that they have seen steep declines. More than half of all churches report some kind of decline, while the percentage of those who claim no religion, the nuns as they are called, have increased dramatically. It is a low time and a low tide spiritually. That's where we are in this psalm. What must we do? When spiritual life fades, here's the first thing this morning, Go back and remember God's past mercies. Remember His faithfulness. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Lord, You were favorable to Your land. You restored, notice the past tense, the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of Your people. You covered all their sins. You withdrew all Your wrath and turned from Your hot anger. Do you see how he's looking back here? He's remembering better times, former days of God's mercy. Historically, this psalm was probably written during the days of Ezra when God had indeed shown them great mercy in their recent past. 
You remember that because of Israel's sin, the Jewish people lost everything. The nation itself had been destroyed. Jerusalem was in ruins. The temple crushed. The people sent away into exile. But always faithful to keep His promises, God in 538 B.C. decreed through King Cyrus that they could in fact return home. And they did return. It was a time of renewal and joy as they went home and began to rebuild the nation. And yet, after that return, during the days of Ezra, the people fell once again into a time of spiritual decline. The tide was rolling out. The people were losing their faith and turning away from God. And and that sight provoked Ezra to begin to pray. Ezra 9 verse 4, for instance, says that all who trembled at the words of the Lord, the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me as I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And then he begins to pray. Why did Ezra pray? Because he knew God's mercy. He remembered better days when he and the nation had walked with God and known His blessings. He remembered the promise of blessing for a people who will seek Him. And he longed to see those days return. Do you have memories? of the past experience of God's mercy like that in your life? I mean, I believe as a Christian, you do, you must. I mean, think back to what He has done. How He has saved you. What He has saved you from. I know in in my own life, uh, as a young man, I was incredibly arrogant. Shackled to pornography. Bent on having my, my own way in everything. But in the summer of 1981, God saved me. He opened my eyes one night when I was out partying with some friends. He showed me my sin and where it was leading. And then He showed me Christ and what Christ alone could do for me. And I turned. I literally fell down on my knees and cried out to Him. And new life entered in. My life began to change. The whole course began to be redirected. The psalmist looks back and he says, Lord, I remember those days when you restored us to yourself. In fact, look at the words that he uses here to describe the kindness of God that they've experienced. There's four of them I want to call your attention to. Uh, Restore, forgive, cover, and remove wrath. You see, this is what God's favor looks like when He calls His people back to Himself. This is what you, dear Christian, have received if you are in Christ by faith. First of all, restoration. That is really the theme of this entire psalm. Uh, This renewal of fellowship that we have been called back into and indeed will be restored to fellowship with God. The the theme of spiritual renewal. This word is actually found five times in this psalm in verse 1, 3, 4, 6, and 8. At the very heart, it means to turn back or to be turned back. It's a picture of God's sovereign work in bringing sinners to repentance. Literally, the end of verse 1 reads, You turned back the turning of Jacob. 
You did this, is the emphasis. You took hold of Jacob in his sin and you turned him back to you. Uh, Jacob in Scripture very often represents the nation in its sin being turned back to God through grace. Or in our case, uh, perhaps the individual as well as he did Jacob. Because Christian, God has done that for you. If you're in Christ, God has done this for you. Your very repenting was a gift of His grace bringing you into fellowship with Himself. And He longs to continue bringing you to Himself. Second, the word forgiveness. God's mercy not only restores us to fellowship, but He also forgives us all our sins. This word forgive literally means to lift a burden. Your sin was like a weight weighing you down to hell. Keeping you from God. But but Christ took that weight upon Himself and carried it off to Calvary. He, He took the burden of your sin and killed it at the cross. But not only that, look at the next word. Not only forgiven, but also covered. You forgave the iniquity of your sin. Verse 2 says you covered all their sin. Having killed our sin on the cross, He buried it in the grave. It no longer has power to condemn. Our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus just as His righteousness now covers us so that we are counted worthy to enter and fellowship with Him. It is a picture of a full atonement, a complete forgiveness. How many of our sins has He covered? What does it say? Look at it. All of them. How merciful God has been to us. But fourth, it says He has removed His wrath. Verse 3, You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Do you understand that God has a right to be angry at every sin? Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Every sin we sin dishonors Him, robs Him of His glory, mocks His holiness, blasphemes His righteousness. And we in ourselves, apart from Christ, are full of sin and thus worthy of His wrath. Listen, that's what hell is for. To give sin its due. But it's also why Christ came. To take your sin upon Himself and bear its wrath in your place. The New Testament word for that is propitiation. I hope you love that word. 1 John 2 verse 2 says, He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. That is the sacrifice that takes away God's wrath. All the anger of God against your sin, if you're in Christ, all of it was poured out upon Christ who took it in your place, who drank down the cup so that there was no more left for you. Which means if you're in Christ, no matter what your past may be, God is not angry at you anymore. Because all of that wrath was taken in your place by Christ. Notice again, all of it, so that there is none left to be spent on you. Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And God is now free to embrace you and claim you as His own and treat you as His beloved child. That's the status of the believer. And so this psalm is calling us to look back and remember the depths of God's mercy. So that as we look around now and see our sin and the condition of our world, we are emboldened to go back to Him and ask for His help. Which brings us to this second thing, and that is, in our spiritual need, and dear one, I hope you see that we have great spiritual need, in our spiritual need, we must pray and seek God to restore us for His glory. Verses 4-7 to Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. This is the heart of this prayer. Restore us again, O God. Turn us back to you. I notice there is a corporate concern here. The psalmist is not just praying for himself alone. He's having remembered the mercies of God. He prays a large prayer here. Lord, return to us as a whole. Restore us as a nation, as a people. Do you pray like that? Do you ask God to come and change the world? You see, it's easy to just look around and and, and complain about the way things are, the drift of the nation, the the, the free fall of morality, to to look at it all, throw up your hands and say, oh, it's useless. But here's the critical question. Does that concern for what you see move you to pray to the only one who can do something about it? If not, what are you doing? Complaints are worthless. Prayer is powerful. Turn us, O God, is this prayer. Reminds me of a scene in the Welsh Revival that I mentioned in this week's Pastor's Word in your bulletin when a young man named Evan Roberts concerned about the state of his nation, went to a prayer meeting. In that prayer meeting, he heard an older man pray, Lord, bend the church! And Evan thought within himself, Lord, bend me! And God did. And Evan was renewed. And through him, then the church, and then through the church, the nation... It begins with us seeking God for renewed hearts as we look to Him to change the world through prayer. We don't pray enough, church. And that's not anything more than just a, a confession. Because we need prayer. God is the one who will move through prayer. In fact, look at verse 5. This is a sobering question the psalmist asks. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? You say, wait a minute, I I thought we just said that God's wrath has been taken away through the propitiation of Christ. But we did. 
But this is a different thing. There we were talking about the judicial wrath of God against sinners which Christ has taken away for those who are saved. We are no longer condemned to hell. Praise the Lord. But here we're talking about the righteous indignation of God that settles upon nations and peoples and cultures who are in rebellion against Him. Do you remember Romans 8? Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he then goes on to describe pretty much the Roman world and our world today in its open, flagrant rebellion against Him. So not only do individuals come under God's judgment, but cultures do as well. Nations do. Even churches so-called that fall away from Him come under God's judgment because of their rebellion against Him. And so here's the question. What kind of nation will we leave to our children? Are we leaving them a nation that will be known because of its experience of the blessing and nearness of God? Or are we leaving one that is under the wrath of God for its rebellion? And what about the church? What about this church? I look at these children here, many of whom who I hope will continue on among us if the Lord permits. Will they grow up? knowing the light and vibrancy of a church that is alive with the presence of God, filled with His grace, singing the songs of His glory, or only the dead formalism and dry legalism of worthless religion awash in an increasingly toxic culture. One reason we seek God for this kind of renewal is not for ourselves alone, and not just for the culture around us, but also for the sake of our children who otherwise must live in a nation under God's wrath. That's the question here. Lord, are you going to leave us like this? Are you going to just let this continue? Is this what you're going to let us pass on to our children in the next generation? Or will you move to bring restoration and life? That's a motive to pray. To pray as He does in verses 6 and 7. Will You not revive us again that Your people may rejoice in You? Show us Your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us Your salvation. This is the heart of the heart of this prayer. That there's urgency to it. And look how God-centered it is. Oh Lord, won't You wake us up? Won't You restore us to life again? Do for us now what You've done in the past. Wake us from our lethargy. Do you pray like that? Three things about this prayer. First, notice this word revive or revival. It means an awakening to life. Life from the dead. That's that's what we need. That's what the church in America needs. It's the same word I mentioned before several times through here, but here joined with another word that also means to bring back 
from the dead or to bring back to life, to restore what was dead and make it living. That's what we need. We don't just need a little pep talk. We don't just need a little advice, a new plan of religion, a new package deal someone comes up with, a new program. We need life from the dead. That is something no human being or agency can provide. No matter how many lights and shows and entertainment venues we construct, we can't do this. But I know someone who can. That's why we pray. God, restore the life sin has taken. Breathe, O Holy Spirit, and restore dead Lazarus and all that has been lost. Second, the word rejoice in verse 6. We ask God to restore a God-centered joy in Him. Verse 6, will you not revive us again? Why? That your people may rejoice in you. Do you see the goal here? What is the purpose of this restoration we seek? That we might enjoy life more? No, that God would be glorified and His people as a result would praise Him. Right? What is the chief end of man? Do you remember? Man's chief end is what? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what salvation brings. That's what renewal works. A new God-centered joy among His people as we watch Him work. I mean, we get the help, as Piper would say, but He gets the glory. Because third, notice, your steadfast love. This is our hope as we pray. This is why we have confidence to pray. Verse 7, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Steadfast love. Some of you are ahead of me. You know what that word is. That's the Hebrew word hesed. God's covenant faithfulness. God's promise to love us for Christ's sake that He has made in Himself and will keep Himself. And it's what we're saying here is, Lord, Lord, we know this is true of You. We know that You are full of hesed for Your people. And we want to see it. We don't just want to hear about it. We just want to know the Word so we can write it down in our notes. We want to experience this reality. Send down your hesed. Revive us again. That's the prayer. This is bold praying. God, You've promised to show us undeserved mercy. So do it. I wrestled with this as as, as I prepared the message told the guys who meet early to pray that I don't pray as I ought. I don't walk as I ought. Who am I to, 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 to even say these things? And yet, it's in the text, it's in the Word, it's a call to my own heart to go to God and say, Lord, You said You would renew and bless Your people who seek after You, so God, we're seeking You. We're going to hold you to that promise and keep seeking you till you give it. We won't let you go until you bless us. Do you ever pray that way? Do we as a church? I mean, maybe it's it's time to start. I'm not even sure how to work this out. But there's an urgency here. There's an urgency built by faith on the sure covenant promise.
promises of God. And that brings us to this third thing. Knowing God's faithfulness, knowing it from His Word, knowing because of who He is, knowing God's faithfulness, we pray in anticipation that He will indeed keep His promises. Verses 8-13, through 13, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For He will speak peace to His people, to His saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. And our land will increase uh, its yield. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. Now, do you hear hear this note of confident expectation? God's going to do this. He says, this is my confidence. So so let me hear what God will speak, verse 8. And you just get this picture that the psalmist, having prayed this prayer, turns his full attention, his face up toward God, listening for God's Word, anticipating God's answer. Do you do that, Bible in hand? I I mean, that's what faith is. Faith takes God at His Word, asks for things according to His Word, and then waits for God to fulfill His Word. Faith, prayer, and God's Word always travel together as companions for our good. He says, I'm not going to fall into discouragement. I'm not just going to sit here and complain. I'm going to ask God to move. And then I'm going to wait and watch until He answers. That answer that He anticipates very quickly involves five things here. Five aspects of God's blessing. First, that God will speak peace to us. Look at verse 8. Let let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people, to His saints. You understand that prayer does not mean that you will see an immediate resolution of all your problems. That remains in the hands of God's sovereignty. Very often we can't see what God is doing behind the scenes through these things that we perceive as troubles or things that really are troubles. We don't see that He is using them ultimately for our good. But what prayer does, rather than merely remove the source of trouble, is that it brings us to God in the trouble where we gain the assurance of His presence and His peace. He says, I will ask of God and He will speak peace. You understand, when God speaks a thing, that thing happens. Let there be light. And so... Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this word peace here in this psalm is that Hebrew word shalom, which means not the absence of war, it means wholeness, it means a a well-founded well-being of soul. 
When we pray and look to God, God's presence brings His peace into our souls to strengthen and stabilize us in our walk with Him. As Jesus promised, John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Was Jesus' life without trouble? No. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He speaks peace. Second, He gives warning not to turn back to folly. Again, verse 8, Let me hear what the Lord will speak. Notice how tied that is to His Word, by the way. Let me hear what the Lord will speak. For He will speak peace to His people, to His saints, but let them not turn back to folly. In other words, don't let your impatience drive you back into your sin. Having been rescued from sin by His grace, don't get stupid. Sorry, parents. But that, some, I always get in trouble when I use that word. But that really is the best, best translation of this Hebrew word. So take it up with the writer of Hebrews. Because it's a writer of Psalm. Because it's, it's stupid when those who know God and have tasted the blessing of His presence turn back from God to embrace the very sinful things He saved them from. Things that never have, never will, never can satisfy them. I mean, I mean, we know that they can't satisfy us. And yet, your foolish flesh falls into them again. How many times? I'm asking myself this week, how many times are you going to do this? How many times are you going to fall back into this thing? Christ has saved. No, no. The psalmist says, come back. Guard your heart. Set your eyes on Christ. And when you do fail, return to Him by the grace of the cross for cleansing, restoration, washing, all that He promises. Third, and know that the fear of God will keep you walking in the goodness of God's salvation. Verse 9, Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. That glory may dwell in our land. He's near to those who fear Him. We don't talk enough about the fear of God. It means to reverence Him. It means to see Him as a really big deal. To see Him for who He is. You you see Him for who He is and you tremble. Because he's, he's great and mighty and awesome and terrifying in His holiness, but also good and kind and faithful to those who trust Him. That fear of God, seeing Him for who He is and trembling, is what will keep you from the folly of sin. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is the opposite of folly. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Just this week, I was reading a devotional from Charles Spurgeon, always dangerous. He said this about the fear of God. He said, Let us cultivate the holy fear of Jehovah that is the essence of all true religion. The fear that consists of reverence, of dread to offend, of anxiety to, to please. 
and of entire submission and obedience. This fear of the Lord is the fit fountain of holy living. We look in vain for holiness apart from it. None but those who fear the Lord will ever walk in His ways. Do you fear the Lord? Do you cultivate that in your heart? You go and you get a good look at God daily in His Word. You remind yourself of who He is and all that He has done. And that keeps you near so you can walk in the joy of salvation, in sanctification, knowing your sins are forgiven. And when you stray, you're quick to come back. Fourth, and we anticipate rejoicing in the glory of God as He comes to dwell in our land. Verse 9, Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. This is our desire. Understand, God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. He dwells today in His people, His church. And He makes His glory known to the world by displaying that glory through the lives of His redeemed and sanctified people. This word to dwell uh, in Psalm is the same word you find in Exodus chapter 40 for the Shekinah glory of God that came down and settled visibly upon the tabernacle. They knew God was among them because they could see His glory at work. People will know God is among us when they can see His glory at work in and through us. You want to see a nation, a people transformed? It begins when God's people dwell in God's presence by faith in such a way that God's glory can be seen through them. Matthew 5.16, as Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The history of revivals, and someday we just got to talk about that. And just If you don't know some of these stories, you ought to. But the history of revivals, it was very common that God would get hold of the church. He would purge and purify His people. And then through the renewal of His people, He would renew the entire land. I gave you a taste of that in the pastor's word for the Welsh revival, but so much more that could have been said. Fifth, we then, because of God's mercy, because of His renewing work, we anticipate the blessing the gospel brings as God begins to move among us in salvation. Verse 10 to 13, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. And our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. This is is gospel language as heaven meets earth to bring down the blessings of God in salvation. Where else? Where else can we see God's steadfast love and His absolute truth or justice come together except in the cross of Christ? Think about it. Only here do all the attributes of God coalesce and come together in the person of Christ, especially as we see Him on the cross. Justice, God's justice demands your death for sin. Love would offer salvation. 
They seem to be in conflict with one another. How can these two things stand, especially in perfection as they do in Him? The only answer comes as we look at the cross of Christ because this is where love and justice meet together. Justice pours out God's righteous wrath upon Christ in our place so that love can open its arms to embrace us in peace. Isn't that the promise? Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, justified by faith in the finished cross work of Christ, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Salvation from sin. Renewed life. That's what the Gospel brings. And so verse 11 says, and I love this picture in verse 11. Just take this one home and ruminate on it. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the skies. I mean, it's poetry. But but can you just see this in your mind? If not, you need need more imagination. Let a five-year-old read this to you and describe it, right? We're standing here on earth lifting holy hands, touched by His grace, trusting God for His righteousness, resting in His bounty, seeing His good works begin to begin to abound through us while He is smiling down on us from heaven, satisfied by the righteous blood of Christ in our place, pouring down His blessings upon a Christ-filled people. Heaven and earth meet together at the cross to bring peace and salvation through Him. They didn't have time to talk about um, righteousness and peace kissing each other. There's another one for you to figure out. But that reality, heaven invades earth and it begins to spread. Verse 12, Yes, He says, the Lord will give what is good. Our land in which we dwell will yield its increase. The Gospel goes out and brings its blessed fruit, and lives are changed. That's why we pray. That's why we turn from sin to put our trust in Christ and cry out to Him. Because when He comes, verse 13, righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. God, through the Gospel, steps into this world. He opens a way of salvation that all who believe may come. And we invite them to come. And we pray that they will come. And we serve them so that they will come. And we to join us as we follow Him. But it all begins here in prayer. I mean, there's more to it than prayer. Yes, of course. But there is not less to it than prayer. And so let us pray. I'm going to pray and bring us to a close, but I've been wrestling with an idea on the back of my mind all morning trying to decide whether this is just my silly idea or the Lord, Lord's prompting. So I'm just going to say it. Um, wasn't planned, but I don't know what your evening... I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to come at 6 o'clock. Just because I feel such a need for the Lord to move. I'm going to come at 6 and if it's me by myself, that's fine. I'm, I don't say that like, oh, if it's me by myself. I just mean, the Lord says, Scott, come up here and pray. 
Pray for this nation. Pray for this church. Pray for renewal. We're looking at a building and looking at how we would make room for those God is bringing us. And that's important. And that's something we're getting lots of thought. You have no idea how much time some of your fellow members are giving right now just to search out how would the Lord have us do this if we do it. But that is worthless if we are not renewed spiritually. Buildings are important. But they're only important and good for a spiritually renewed and vibrant and living people. And so, if you're free and want to join me, I'll be here. Um, but we, we need prayer. We need the Lord to move. This culture needs it. Our nation needs it. Your children need it. We, we just need to ask God to do what only God can do. And so, Father, I have no plan or agenda beyond just that, trying to be faithful to Your good Word, believing that it calls us to be spiritually dependent upon You who alone can give the blessing, and You're sovereign in it. Even right now, there are some in this room who give lip service to Christ but have never bowed the knee and come and been saved from their sin and redeemed from the, 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 the hell that is awaiting them. God, there are some that are of age, some that are adults, They need You to reach in and touch them and do what You only have power to do, and that is save them. There are others, Lord, who belong to You, but they're just so spiritually dead right now. I've been there many times, Lord. They need You to reach in and touch Holy Spirit. There's some who are sleepwalking through their obedience to You. They want to do right. They love You and they want to be faithful, but it just seems like There's no reality to it. Would You grant the reality? Would You give us what we need, each one? Lord, I'm not wise enough to know what each person here needs, but You do. You are. You will to those who look to You and ask. And so we ask, save, Lord. Renew, Lord. Refresh, Lord. Give life, Lord, that we may walk in glad obedience with You for Christ's sake. Amen.